Um, just to start off, uh, I guess there's like some basic principles we need to make sure we have in mind here. So um, we will need to talk a little bit about historical methods. So, yay, foundations of the church. And the question here, of course, is why does history matter? And of course, for many, many students, I find that history is not their favorite subject. It's not something that they're really into. Of course, they make them take it in school. But there you see Abraham Lincoln with his boombox. Um, that was his favorite boombox. It would play uh, hip-hop music and things like that. Um, of course, what is this picture of Lincoln with a boombox? <clears throat> so we call historical anachronism. Historical anachronism. What? What kind of a phrase is that? Well, historical anachronism is something that doesn't fit. So you see Lincoln with a boombox and immediately you recognize something's wrong. Unless you have no knowledge of history. You don't know that's Lincoln. You don't know that he lived in the 1800s. You don't know that boom boxes didn't exist in the 1800s, all these other things, right? But if you have any knowledge of history, you know the picture's not right. <clears throat> this is why history is important. You know, we don't think about history. And often, like I said, kids will complain, but history is literally everything. Like, it is everything. It is everything that you do. It is everything that you are. It's how you look at the world. You know, the reason that you're here is because of history. The clothes you're wearing, the, the songs we sing, uh, what you're going to do after church. These are all based on history. And we have like a private history, things that have affected our lives, that have brought us to where we are at this point. <clears throat> the way we live, the habits we have are all based upon historical events. And of course, in class, what you're studying is kind of a more global history, right? The history of the United States, the history of the world. And, and why do we do this? Well, the first thing is history gives us an understanding <clears throat> of why things are the way they are. Like in this church today, the women and the men are sitting near each other. In the early church, it wasn't like that. It was segregated. The women sat on one side of the church and the men sat on the other side of the church, which of course in our culture, that's oh, sexism, bigotry. Now, if you know your history, you know were they trying to be sexist? No, they weren't trying to be sexist. Another key thing about history is not just to understand how things have changed or why things are the way they are, but also to give perspective. And there's a lot of people who hate on Christians and hate on the church because they'll study history without perspective. They'll see that in the church that women and men were separated. And in today's culture, today's understanding of things, that's discrimination. But in that culture, men and women the perspective is they did not interact together in a close way like that. It was considered normal to be separated. What's happened? History. Things have changed. Those changes have led to a culture in which we're much more comfortable, kind of mingling, really, uh, if based on gender. You know, their culture had much stricter rules on not mingling based on gender. Because after all, mingling genders can cause problems you watch the news you know I'm not against genders being around each other I think it's fine I'm part of my historical culture but certainly if you look around at our culture I mean if you think about it uh, Vice President Pence people mocked and teased him if you remember he had said that by a rule he never ever ever meets with females alone like some reporters are very angry about that because he had a rule that he's not going to meet privately with a female unless there's other people around he has kind of a little bit of a mingling rule People teased him about it, and then you look at all the politicians and all the sexual scandals, right? 
and all these accusations that people have and things like that. So in the Old Testament days, or, and even in the early days of the New Testament, they had all these rules about mingling because that's how they, their society dealt with the problem. Our society handles it differently. We're expected to mingle and then behave ourselves, which some of us do. A lot of politicians don't. And other people, okay, famous people. So perspective. If you don't have a perspective of why things happen, then you misinterpret things. And if you think about your own life, when you ever get into a disagreement with someone, what always happens is it, gets, it really becomes a history debate, if you think about it, right? What's, what's happening in a disagreement? The, the one person is trying to give a perspective of why they did what they did. Because all of us like to think that we're behaving rationally, right? So when the other person comes against us, what am I doing? Wow, I did that because of ding, 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 ding. What am I doing when I'm giving perspective of what I think is real? I'm trying to educate the other person in my history of the events and what's happening. In fact, what continues disagreements is usually the fact that the other person cannot understand your perspective or disagrees with it. Boom. Empathy, closely related, right? If I understand the history of a circumstance, it helps to give me empathy for their circumstance. Certainly for Christians, this is very important. I mean, as Christians, we're called to, to go out into the world and talk to people and show them the truth. But in doing that, if you have no understanding of the circumstances and conditions of the people that you're talking to, if you can't show empathy for the people that you're trying to talk to, what happens to your message? They don't understand. Empathy is important because it helps people connect to each other. History is what gives me empathy. I may not agree with what other people do, but if I understand their circumstance, and if I can make empathy with that person, I can bond with them, I can understand them better. And of course, the last thing I think is gratitude. I think it's especially true if you're an American. Um, we live in the wealthiest, most successful society in the history of the world. Thanks. Sorry, you're okay. Yeah, I know. I'm, somehow my, my light body is moving this thing a little bit here. I don't know how it's happening. So, um, <clears throat> Gratitude. We have to make jokes about first world problems. That's a historical perspective, isn't it? I mean... Don't get me wrong, we obviously have problems, but wow, the things we'll complain about sometimes, right? The things we'll complain about. You know, it's like, oh man, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. My pop is warm. <laughs> it's like, try third world countries. They don't, not only is your pop always warm, but you don't have pop. And, Probably don't have water, at least not good water to drink, right? You're probably, you know, it's just, you know, when you look at other societies, you realize, oh my gosh, things are so much better. Gratitude. You know, if you look at people who have no knowledge of history, it's really easy to be ungrateful. You know, you look at people that are blessed with all kinds of things, but they really have no perspective of history of where they are or how they have things compared to other people. They can often be petty and jealous and, you know complaining about minor little problems. History is important because it gives us gratitude. It gives us an ability to look at other people and their conditions and what's going on with them. Another thing we need to address besides why does history matter is um, historical concepts. That's our guy. See how happy he is? He's happy because he established critical historical inquiry. He's kind of the father of modern history. So of course you know who he is. Well, of course, he's a German, because all great thinkers are German. 
next to you. There's George Hegel, George Hegel. George Hegel is kind of the father of modern history. He basically studied this concept of change. Really interesting guy, we could spend a whole long time talking about him. But, you know, kind of general idea was he often pointed out that you know, he, he noticed something about continuity and change. He's the guy who invented the word there at the top called die Zeitgeist, nice German word, die Zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the times. If you're gonna study history, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people who were living at that time. Kind of a big deal. If you can't do that, then you can't understand history. Okay, if you're gonna study the D-Day invasion, you have to be able to, in some ways, transport yourself into that boat, those LSTs and those choppy waves and kind of rough weather as you're moving towards those German pillboxes and the machine guns are sighted right at you as you come down. It helps them make their behavior seem more understandable, right? Like if there were some men that day that were kind of afraid and hiding behind the steel barriers, I can understand that a little bit better because if I can put myself in the shoes of a dude, of a 19-year-old kid on the beaches of Normandy, suddenly their fear and terror becomes real to me. You see why history can encourage empathy, right? And the problem we often have in history is we tend to look backwards with 2020 vision. And a big part of zeitgeist is to understand that people don't have 2020 vision. We kind of know this instinctively, right? When we do things, and especially if we do dumb things, we want lots and lots of empathy for the fact we did something dumb because we didn't know, or at least we didn't have a clear picture. If we could do it over again, of course, we'd do it again. But sometimes when we study history, you don't give the people in history the same opportunity to be real. They don't get a chance to do it over again either. They're kind of going through this. So it's really important that you do that because especially in today's culture, especially in America, there's a real emphasis on history that's really, 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 really negative. And we tend to look at people in the past and look at their mistakes and are very judgmental and they're so stupid and blah, blah, blah. That's dangerous. If you can't practice zeitgeist, then you're in danger of actually falling for the same things those people fell for because you kind of take a superior attitude and you kind of see yourself as perfect in comparison to people in the past. But one of the things Hegel noticed was continuity and change, and that is things tend to stay the same and at the same time, things are changing all the time. That's contradictory seemingly, right? <clears throat> what did Hegel realize? Well, he kind of set up the system here where you have like the, the, the society as it is, and then you have these forces of change that come in and those forces of change change the culture. But then the culture becomes a third option, which is this weird combination of the new changes and the old. That's important to keep in mind when you study history because you're constantly changing, but at the same time, there are certain things that are kind of universal that exist throughout time. If we could put you in a time machine 2,000 years ago and drop you off in Jerusalem, and you're going to join the church in Jerusalem, those new Christians, it would be a lot different. Again, the women and men would be sitting in different areas. There'd be all these cultural things you'd have to learn. You'd probably be wearing long dresses. Men too. <laughs> Robes, things like that, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, a lot of things would be the same. People would still be struggling with personal struggles, maybe with lying or stealing. People would still be generous and, and caring and compassionate. All those things that make us human would all be the same, but the circumstances would be different. It's important to understand that because that impacts how we interact with our lives and our history. Uh, another key thing that he pointed out here was the determinism versus the power of individual. What does that mean? Well, determinism is some things are just gonna happen, right? 
If tomorrow morning the world financial system collapses, which it could do, happens from time to time, that might cause you to lose your job, it might cause your home value to drop dramatically, it might make your stock portfolio decline. Is there really anything you could do about that if the world financial system collapses tomorrow? Not really. This is the scary part of history. Some things in history are just going to happen and you're gonna get caught up in those events. That's determinism. But there's something else. There's the power of the individual. We do know that even though certain things are going to happen, individuals make a difference. I had a picture of Abraham Lincoln holding up a boom box. You do realize America's fortunate that Abraham Lincoln was president at that particular time in history. The, the, the fight over slavery might have been something that was probably going to occur at some point no matter what, right? Slavery was an issue that had to be resolved. In fact, that's how Lincoln talked about it. He talked about like a, like a storm that was coming. He even mentioned God, like it was a divine punishment on this country for the sin of slavery. And yet, can you imagine, just imagine some presidents you've lived through and imagine if they were running the country during 1860 to 1865. The Civil War might have turned out really differently. I mean, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, any of them, right? Well, would it have turned out differently? If those men had been in charge during the Civil War, things would have gone very, very differently. It would be huge, right? It'd be very different. And I'm not saying it'd be good or bad. Now, obviously, based on your personal prejudices, you would probably assume if that person was president, the Civil War would have been a total failure or whatever, or it could have been better. But it's different because of people. You have the power to change your condition, right? If the world economy collapses, you might not necessarily be in the worst possible conditions. It always amazes me how many businesses in America today that are phenomenally successful, such as Myers, started during the Great Depression. It's the Great Depression, no one has money. What does Frederick Meyer do? He just kind of goes almost like a little like a door-to-door -door thing on his own, just selling some fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, and it turns into Myers. An individual changed the circumstances in which he was stuck in, right? So determinism versus the individual, keep in mind. And then the good with the bad, you need to keep in mind, this is a tough thing for us. We always tend to interpret history as always good or always bad, right? Columbus is a hero or Columbus is a villain. Hitler is a villain, Hitler is, no, Hitler's not good. But, <laughs> but here's the crazy thing. Did, were there many people that benefited and flourished under Hitler's leadership? Yeah. German employment was like 20, 30% when he came to power and then it went down to zero. And there are many Germans that loved Hitler and they loved Hitler because their situation was getting better. What? I'm not advocating for Hitler. I'm taking an extreme situation. And what I'm trying to show you is even in something like Nazi Germany, some people were prospering and doing well. You got to keep that in mind because if you don't, if you're unwilling to accept the fact that someone as evil as Hitler could have had a leadership in which some people prospered and flourished, then you can't understand Nazi Germany. See, it's not like Hitler is all by himself. See, we watch these movies, right? Like you watch Star Wars and stuff like that, and you got the emperor, and the emperor is completely evil, and even his closest associates are terrified of the emperor, and no one will talk to the emperor. That's how all these movies are always portrayed. That's not real. Look at the history of dictators and leaders. They have crowds of millions cheering them. See, we like to create 
evil in the sight of, you know, this one evil person we can focus all of our hatred on. But also, in a way, it's kind of like a, a, a cheat, right? Like, well, none of us were involved in it. It's just the evil guy's fault. No, there's millions of really nice, middle-class, average Germans that were, like, cheering him. Heck, there was thousands and thousands of Americans that were cheering Hitler. None of them will admit that after 1941. But there's a lot of Americans that supported Hitler. Got to keep that in mind. The good comes with the bad. Like, I totally hate communism and socialism, if you know me at all. But if I'm going to study communism and socialism from a historical standpoint, clearly it offered something to some people. It, in order for it to succeed and spread the way it did, someone's benefiting. Someone's seeing it as a positive good. This is going to make things confusing sometimes because the good often resides alongside the bad. As you know in your own life, there are situations you've probably had that were probably not comfortable or good. And yet out of that came good things. There's other things that might have been good, but it didn't always end up really good. Or maybe there was problems you had, even though you're having success. So you got to keep this in mind, because in history, we have a real danger. We like to try to just make it all good or all bad, which is a poor perspective, by the way. And then finally, the ultimate goal of history is to achieve truth. What you're trying to learn is what actually happened. What's the truth of this? And what can I learn from this? If you can't perceive truth, then you miss everything. There's a reason why dictators always change the history books. That's the first thing. They don't change the math books. They don't try to make two plus two seven. They don't try to change, you know, the, the, the law of gravity or things like that, but they do want to change the history books. They want to rewrite the story of what happened. Because if you can do that, you can then control what people perceive as their reality, right? America's a wonderful place and the founding fathers are amazing people and they were perfect, never did anything wrong. We've had that stage in our history. Now we're kind of in a different stage of history. They all stink, we should tear down all the monuments to Thomas Jefferson and they would never live. They don't slave, they're terrible, they're horrible people. But I just get done saying, the good exists with the bad. But for most people, that's not how they interpret history. So we need to keep this in mind. Why is this important if we're talking about church history? Because a lot of people today believe the church is a waste of time and people should not be investing in church. That's why we're doing church history, right? It is valuable. But here's gonna be the problem. Even though I'm gonna have the position that the church is valuable and something we need to do, does the church have all kinds of problems? Are there terrible people in churches? Yes. And because of those bad situations, lots of people just say, a pox on the church and everything to do with it. That's bad history. Why do I support the church even though there's bad people in the church, even though there's people who do things they're not supposed to do? Well, at the bottom of the line, there's truth. And the truth is, God, Jesus, said we should have one. That's the truth. We were, we were commanded, we were ordered to try to live together in harmony and form a church even though we're not going to do it very good. So even though maybe you didn't brush your teeth before church, I'm going to have to get close to you and smell that bad breath or whatever, or you didn't do pun on deodorant, I've been commanded to try to make this happen, even though it's not going to be easy, even though it might not work all the time. That the truth is important because the truth is what underpins all these things. If I know what's true, 
then that gives me a direction to go. If I don't know what's true, now I can get off in all kinds of crazy things. Like, I'm going to be my own church. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody else, really, because the Bible doesn't say that. That's not true. Okay. So, um, what does Jesus say about the church? Why do we have church? Well, there's a bunch of scripture, and if you know me, I like putting Bible stuff up for some reason. That's just, a, I guess that's my cheat, right? If you put Bible verses, you can't miss that. I'm into Bible, the Word of God, so I'm good to go. So, um, David, let's go back to David. David prophesied in Psalm 118, open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. Here you go. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. What is he talking about? It's prophecy. It's about the future. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. That's a building, isn't it? A cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's a good worship song, by the way, too. The stone that was rejected is going to be the chief stone. Jesus predicted in John chapter 2. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking to the temple, the Jewish temple. This is now hundreds of years later. They now have a church. They have this temple. And Jesus is like, oh, destroy the temple. I'll raise it up in three days. Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building. It's 46 years. And will thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Jesus is talking about his body. In three days after being crucified, he would come back just to communion this is important the Jews had come to believe that the church was the temple the building made of stone and wood and Jesus is saying a new thing which is I'm the temple <clears throat> gotta make sure I'm trying to make a line for you here okay of timeline but he spoke of the temple's body. When therefore he is risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture, and the word which Jesus has said. This is important truth then. Our, our temples, our earthly temples, the house of God. Is this building the house of God? What? Well, yeah, kind of, but it's not actually the building, is it? Thank God. Because if that were true we'd still have the old carpet. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If, if, if we were animists, which is a type of religious belief that God is in things, you know, all oh, these cough drops, God, thank you, you know, God's in, in the many religions, they, God actually is in things, right? The black stone and Mecca and things like that. Well, if that were true, would you be able to tear up the carpet? No, the carpet's holy. Why do we have no problem tearing up old carpet and replacing it with nice new carpet? That's not God. You do realize in Israel, if you had gone into the temple and said, oh, you know, these, these emblems look a little worn out. We're just going to throw those in the garbage. They would like probably execute you for that, right? Because what did they believe? They believed that that was God. Jesus is trying to refocus them. You got it wrong. 
David talked about the chief cornerstone. He's talking about Jesus. And now Jesus is talking about his body. We, our bodies are the temples. Our bodies are the temple of God. Oh. Really? How do we know this? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is Paul, by the way, who's going to come up a little bit later in our story. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free, we've been all made to drink into one spirit. Spirit. Hmm. For the body is not one member, but many. Do you get that? We are baptized into one body. And how many of us are there? The body is not one member, but many. If you think you're going to do church all by yourself, are you living in truth? No. What's it saying? We're not one member, we're many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not the body, is it therefore not of the body? You can have church on your own. Is that, is that real? Are you going to be your own little hand? Now, if you're in the Adams family, <laughs> right? They get the hand that goes around, crawls around out of the box and stuff like that. I guess maybe, right? But of course, that's fantasy. If the foot shall say, because I'm not of the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the, if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now has God set the members of every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where is the body? But now are there many members yet but one body? And if you've read the Bible at all, you know this is true, right? You know that you've heard this many, many times. How could you possibly read this scripture, which talks about all of us being different parts of one body and then conclude you're gonna do church on your own? just doesn't make any sense. But now are they many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor the, again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. Thank God for bile ducts. <laughs> All that green nastiness that comes out of your liver. And when you don't feel good, it kind of, boom. If it, if it weren't around, can you imagine how miserable your body would be all the time? Awful. Those members of the body which we think be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For the comely parts have no need. Comely meaning the pretty parts, right? The nice parts of your body. But God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Truth. Should we be setting ourselves up one more important than the other? What's Paul saying? No, just because some people in the church have to do things that are important that aren't very exciting, they're just as important as the people who are up on the stage and doing all the cool stuff, like talking about church history or whatever, right? There is no difference. They're all vital. Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. All members suffer and all members are honored. Does that sound like a church of one? Unless you're a schizophrenic. 
okay? We're in this thing together. So once again, why is history important? Because when you go through church stuff, there's lots of good things, but there's some bad things. And when the bad things come, it's easy to say, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. It's not what the Bible's saying. Hmm. Finally, in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We talked about stones before, didn't we? Jesus was the cornerstone. Now what's he saying about us? You were rejected. We were rejected by humans. It's, you know, if you're a Christian, you're being rejected by the world. You don't live in the way the world wants you to live. But we are living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Why do people stumble when they come in contact with us? Because they're disobeying the message that they were destined for. God wants all people to come to him. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's this? Continuity and change, right? Are we the same people we were? Yes, but no. What's happened to our condition once we've received God? We now receive mercy. We now are in light. We weren't just a people wandering around, but now we're a people of God. That's why we need to be in church. That's why understanding the church and church history is important. We're the stones of the church, just like Jesus was. He's the chief cornerstone, right? What's the cornerstone? That's the stone that sets the corner. If you know bricklaying, you set your cornerstone, you gotta be really careful and get that thing straight, right? But once the cornerstone is straight, then what does the mason do with all the bricks in the wall that go out from there? All the other bricks are in perfect alignment if that chief cornerstone is set. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but guess what? The church needs not just one brick, but lots of bricks, which is you. We're a chosen priesthood. Notice he calls us a nation, a people of God, not a person only of God. So we have a timeline from David to the apostles to us, continuity and change. The church has existed for more than 2,000 years. Jesus set this up. David predicted it. Jesus claimed it. And then the apostles built it. And we're part of that. Is it the same exact kind of church as it was back then? No, that's why we're studying church history. How has it changed over time? How has it been more perfected and in some cases maybe didn't do so well? Because the good and bad go side by side. That's the truth. The old temple was made of stone, but now we are the stones. We are the church. You can't have a private Christianity because that's not what the Bible said you need to do. If you're gonna live away from truth, you're gonna have problems. It makes sense that America struggles with a private Christianity idea. Because the Bible 
talks about an individual walk with Christ. And we have a relationship with God. When Jesus walks in the garden, he's talking to them individually. So it's really easy to come and conclude, well, hey, since I have this relationship with God, I don't need anyone else. But in addition, think about the history of this. What's happened here in America and the West especially? We promote individualism. Now, I'm part of my culture. I think individualism is wonderful. I love it. I vote for it. I believe in it. But remember the good and bad concept. As, as wonderful as I think individualism is, are there dangers in individualism? In a culture of individualism? Yes. What do we see in the West? In our society, one of the greatest problems is loneliness. Struggling and to relate to other people and have friends and all of our interpersonal relationships and divorce rates and all those things. Why? Because we push our individualism to the point that it makes it very, very difficult to actually interact with other people in a lot of ways. A lot of other cultures that don't do our thing, they've got their problems, don't get me wrong. But they often have much stronger interpersonal relationships, don't they? Just saying. I think Americans struggle with church because it's a reflection of our culture. I, me, and everything I just got done reading to you was about us, nation, people. I'm not saying I get rid of your individualism, because after all, God meets with us personally. But maybe there's a balance problem there, right? That's an important thing to keep in mind. Why is history valuable? Because I don't have to surrender my love of individualism, but it does allow me to have a cautionary thing in my head, right? I gotta be careful that my love of individualism doesn't come in the way of the truth, which is I'm called to live in harmony with other Christians and each other. Oh, doesn't mean you gotta throw individualism out because individualism's good, but I better be careful, right? If that's something that's really big in my culture, maybe that's something I gotta be careful about. Maybe in other cultures that are totally social and there's no individualism, they don't even have the pronoun I or me, maybe they have the other problem. Like, hey, you have to have a, you can't just be saved because you're in the community of other people, which by the way, in those cultures, that's their struggle a lot of times, right? I live in the community of all these Christians, therefore I'm a Christian, you're not, you have no personal walk. Same by their own issue, but that's okay, we can pray for them, right? <laughs> we can teach them. But that's something to keep in mind. We have a personal relationship with Christ, but we aren't called to be living in isolation. In fact, what we're supposed to do is serve each other the way Paul talked about the body. I need the feet to take me places. I need the hands to pick stuff up for me. I need the bile duct to get the Olive Garden creamy mushroom sauce oily stuff out of my body. Ew. This is the basis of the church. All of us serve a vital function. I think of Casey Wells. He exists in our body so that we can make fun of Michigan State. <laughs> ben Poxon. Every week Michigan State loses, I can feel so much better about myself because I can tease Casey. And there's Amber with him. And of course, clearly in the body, Amber's purpose is to comfort Casey <laughs> when Michigan State loses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing. My job is to tease Casey. See, that's how these things work. It's, I'm just, I'm being bad. Okay, sorry. Um, 
There's a Jewish tradition about the church, by the way. There's a continuity. We go all the way back to the Jewish tradition. We don't have temples. We're not sacrificing lambs or things like that. But there's a lot of traditions that we've kept, a lot of continuity. The Jewish church is the basis of our church. Because after all, the first people who got saved were Jews. They didn't know how to do church. So they tried to do church in ways that they were familiar. You know, the idea of the Old Testament, the biggest chunk of your Bible is the Jewish Torah, which is the basis that we use for the New Testament. The idea of covenant, that we make a covenant with God. Maybe not the same exact covenant Abraham made, which we've talked about in this church, but we certainly believe we're a new creation, that, that our act of salvation is a new covenant with God. Our ethics and our morals, what's right and wrong come from the old Jewish church. The idea of redemption, that I used to be this, but I can now be this. All of these things are gifts given to us by the old Jewish church. We don't reject the Jewish church, we incorporate so much of what they have. The first Christians, remember, were Jews. So how did our church begin? Because we're not considered a Jewish church. Change. We have this continuity to the old Jewish church, and yet we're not the same. There's been change. Well, when did this happen? In Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. And that's when the moment or what we think of as our Christian church began. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Change, something's changing here. This hasn't happened before. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you look at the Old Testament, when they built the temple, it talks about the Spirit of God filling that temple. And it'd be like this rushing wind and the fire above the, you know, when they're wandering in the desert, there's a, a pillar of fire. It's like tongues like fire. What's happened? We just read where we're the temple, right? Well, it's actually happening here. The Holy Spirit of God, the power of God was for the Holy of Holies in the old Jewish temple. Only a priest who was perfectly pure and clean could even be in the presence of that. But in those days, there was a separation there, right? The priest could walk into the Holy of Holies and be there in the Holy Spirit of God, but he wasn't actually inside of him, was it? What happens here at the day of Pentecost? We are the temple. Think of the, think of the meaning of that. We are the temple of Christ. That spirit dwells in us. That spirit dwells in us. And along comes Peter. A little bit further down in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a new idea of salvation. I don't have to be who I've always been. I, you're going to always be who you are. But you don't have to be the same you. Change. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. He's giving them a history lesson, isn't he? Remember Jesus, the guy he killed? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible 
that she, he should be holden of it. For David spoke concerning him. Remember David? I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. More history. It's about David and David's prophecy. They knew about David. They'd read the Old Testament. He's one of their heroes. Because you will not leave my soul in hell. What's one of the great comforts of being saved? I'm not going to hell. Fire and brimstone messages aren't popular nowadays. But it's truth. It's something we should be aware of. Neither will I suffer the Holy One to see corruption. You, thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. David's in the ground. You can go to his tomb. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, Jesus, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He is seeing this before and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up. Whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he said to himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. How can this be? You killed Jesus and yet he's Lord in Christ? What's Peter talking about? He's filled with the Holy Spirit at this point when he's talking about this, right? And look what happens when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he brings this truth to them. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. I want you to see a comparison here. I'm going to get you here in a second. But in this particular moment, at this particular time, Peter talks about this and reminds people of their history that you killed the Son of God. And it pricks them in their heart. They're convicted of what they hear. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and the men and the brethren, what should we do? We're confronted with truth is difficult. The question is, the answer is, well, what should I do now? Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When we're confronted with a history that's difficult for us, and what needs to happen at this point if you're gonna make it right? Repentance, for the promise is unto you and your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord God shall call. A legacy for you and your children, history. This isn't a one-time thing. And many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And then they gladly received his word and were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That right there is the beginning of the church. 3,000 souls. Of course, there's a problem. You have 3,000 people and they've all repented. Now what do you do? Do they know all the teachings of Christ? Do they understand everything? Spoiler alert, read the rest of the New Testament. They don't know what they're doing at all. Like they're totally messing up. Like they're constantly have these letters to these churches because they have no clue what they're doing. You think the church you're in has problems. I mean, they're having like orgies in the church. It's the Roman Empire. 
They're having communion like we just had, but they're using actual wine and getting drunk and passed out on the floor, drunk and stuff like that. They got problems. They got to work out. This is important to keep in mind. These were human people. Perspective, right? Empathy. They're struggling just like you are, but they're going to church. They're trying. What did this church look like? Now, be careful here because I just was kind of poking fun at them, but there's some really amazing things too, the good and the bad. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The apostles are the ones teaching them. And in breaking bread and prayers, communion, and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Remember, Jesus had promised they'd do the same things he did and greater. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. They're communists. Yes, they are. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and every man as need. By the way, communists will point to this, they see. Of course, be careful. Is that the government doing this? No. These are individuals serving each other. In a way, my body is kind of a communist organization, right? I mean, my blood is circulating and the different cells are serving each other. Of course, political communism, which I like to poke fun at, would be like somehow, if, I guess we're gonna merge my body with yours physically. Or, uh, like if you ate, the food somehow came to me, right? No, that'd be weird, okay, but that's Mark's So, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. So basically, people get all hung up on the serving possessions. What are they doing? They're serving each other. What should the model of a church look like? It's a group of people that are in harmony with each other that are trying to serve each other. Is it going to be perfect? No. And you've got to be careful here because you're talking about this, and a lot of times modern people look back at the old church and say, oh, the old church, they did it right. They did. They're doing miracles, they're doing wonders, they're doing signs, they're serving each other. But I warned you, you read the rest of the New Testament, they also had problems, just like we do. You need to realize if you're gonna be in a church, the good and the bad's gonna come alongside each other. Obviously, we don't accept the bad, we're trying to fix that part, right? That's repentance and stuff like that comes in. But they're both real. The salvation of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the church. What is the basis of the church? The salvation of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have the ability to do church properly. You're just a building. It was the Spirit that filled the temple that made the temple holy. Just before he died, Jesus told the remaining disciples at the Last Supper, we just did communion. He said to them, um, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have one love one to another. You know, the last thing Jesus is saying before he's going to be going off to the mountain praying and then being crucified. The last instructions he's given them. That is a model he's trying to give for the church. Simon said to him, Lord, where will you go? Jesus answered him, whether I go, you can't follow me now, but you shall not follow me afterwards. Peter's upset. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to die. And right after that, if you read the verse, that's when, Jesus, that's when Peter says, I'll go with you anywhere. Jesus says, you're, you're all going to deny me. No, I'm not. 
Yeah, you will. Hmm. They practice a sacrificial lifestyle. And it was that sacrifice that brought even more to be saved. This has become the model for Christians and have discussed for centuries. The Church of Acts. Sometimes make this a contradiction with the modern church because we don't always look the same as that church. Well, maybe in some ways we do need to even like the Church of Acts, the, the way we give to each other and things like that. But they weren't perfect. In fact, I would argue we probably do a lot of things better than they did. We're not getting drunk during communion. That's a plus, okay? <laughs> We're not having orgies in the church. That's a plus, okay? We do some things better. So don't be too hard on yourself. One of the dangers in history is you tend to idolize things sometimes. If you only look at the good side and not the fact that good and bad exist together, you can idolize things and that's dangerous because you start remembering a history that didn't even exist. You start creating, you start feeling guilt because someone, everyone else in the past was always so much better than you. Kids hate that when old people talk about the good old days. That's what the kids hate about it because they don't like being made to feel like, well, you guys are terrible because the good old days are so much better than you. Guess what? They were good old days, but they were also bad. It's wrong to go too far either way. And one last thing I want to finish with here is, this, is there another reality, a truth that we need to be aware of, and that is persecution. Rachel's mentioned frequently that you have to take up your cross. So in this brief time we have to talk about church history, this is how the church was founded, but you should also know the church was founded and almost immediately there's persecution. And Jesus told you this would be the case, right? The darkness hates the light. They can't exist together. So I mentioned something called determinism, right? Determinism is uh, we're going to be persecuted. That's going to happen. Can't avoid it. What's the individual power? We can turn that persecution into a victory. The first martyr was Stephen. Stephen uh, decided that he would gladly sacrifice his life for the cause. The good goes along with the bad. When Stephen was put on trial, um, they came to him and Stephen talks about, um, you know, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands, as said the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I've read that, right? What house will you build for me, said the Lord? Or what place is, is of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do you. He's talking to the priests, the ones who killed Jesus. Stephen is going to give the same speech that Peter gave in chapter 2. He's going to tell these priests the same thing Peter told the crowd when the 3,000 got saved. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they've slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you've been now the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels that have not kept it? You have murdered the prophets and Jesus. Notice how the priests react. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. In the first example, Peter you killed Jesus Christ and they're pricked in their heart. What can we do? He confronts the priest with the truth. And what do they do? They gnash their teeth. Is there any repentance there at all? Any remorse? But he being full of the Holy Ghost, the spirits in him at this point, looked up steadfastly into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Same thing Jesus saw and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, Jesus. And that truth 
Here's the danger of history if you can't look at it squarely in the face. History can destroy you. They killed Jesus. And when they're confronted with that truth, their response is not, what can I do? How can I make it better? They're furious. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They can't even bear to hear the truth. They're so angry. Maybe you know people like that, right? You try to, you try to tell them the truth, and they're not repentant at all. They're, no. And they ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Saul, the man who was Paul that wrote so much of the New Testament. And Saul was a part of those people who murdered Stephen, the first martyr. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord Lay not this sin on their church. When he said this, he fell asleep. The same message Jesus gave before he died. The world is going to hurt you. And some of those people who hurt you might even be people in the church. But if you become bitter and angry, you end up like the priests. We thought the temple was just a bunch of stone and a bunch of rules. And when they were confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, it drove them to murder. Or you could be like the people that Peter talked to in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They're pricked to their heart. Saul oversaw the murder of the first Christian, and then Saul went on a purge of Christians, killing Christians all over the region. But then as we know, Jesus is going to meet Saul. And Saul ends up writing most of the New Testament. In fact, we quoted him in some of the verses today, didn't we? This is the power of Christ in his church. That the stone that was rejected, maybe in this case Saul, can be restored and become a critical part of the building of the entire church. Those people that you look around you, that you seem like they're just so unreachable and hopeless, God can touch them because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who denied Christ, is the one who spoke at Pentecost and reminded people that they had killed Jesus Christ. The man who was so timid and fearful that little children scared him when they claimed that he was a follower of Jesus. You know, if you remember when Peter proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, what did Jesus tell him? On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You may not see the church always as that institution that you hoped it would be, but the reality is that it's based upon Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and that will not be taken away. Christ can redeem anything and anybody. If he can redeem Saul, he can redeem you. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. This is Paul talking in Romans. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death, because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Maybe you feel dead right now. Maybe you've been harmed by the world. Maybe you've been harmed by the church. But the Holy Spirit can quicken your mortal body. There is nothing God can't do through you because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that brings salvation, that Holy Spirit that brings healing, and that Holy Spirit that can take someone like a Saul who murdered good people and totally turn him around and make him someone that could be one of the great heroes of the church. None of us are as bad as Saul. I've not killed anyone with stones. I've not gone around on a, on a crusade to kill innocent people. None of us have done anything like that. God can meet you right now. Maybe you've never had the chance to know Christ as your Savior. This is your time. So worship team, if you come forward. Think about this from a church history perspective. We really have no other option. What's the truth? God has called us to be a church living in community and harmony with each other. We're not gonna get it right. We're gonna get it wrong all the time. How do I know this? History, I can read the New Testament and they got it wrong all the time. They messed up all the time. But how is the church able to continue? Your heart is either pricked like they are in Acts chapter two. What can I do to make things better? Or you're gnashing your teeth in anger. That's the choice we have as Christians. I let the Holy Spirit flow through me. If the Holy Spirit's flowing, flowing through me, then I have no choice but to live in love because God is love. We can't do it on our own. A church of one can't succeed because inevitably at some point, it's just too hard. You don't have that power to be able to live the life you want. So if the prayer team would come up, you have an opportunity right now. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Prayer, right? What can I do to be saved? What can I do to restore relationship? This is an opportunity. This is one of the things that church can do with us. Church is a place where we can be pricked in our conscience and be motivated to do better. Church is a place where we have these people with us. You have members of the body right here that are willing to be there for you and help you with your needs and concerns. Please feel free to take advantage of that opportunity if you feel like you need it. Thank you.